0: Greetings. Welcome to the OnTIC Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Chuck Randolph, OnTIC's Chief Security Officer. From 30 years as a military officer and 20 transforming corporate security teams to function beyond their traditional roles, protection, risk management, and threat mitigation have been front and center throughout my career. This podcast series will explore the turbulent world of risk, security, and protective strategies through conversations with leaders and innovators in the field. Now, on to the conversation. Dr. Tristan Wheat is a red team analyst specializing in TTP research, threat modeling, and social engineering. Previously, he was a strategic intelligence analyst bridging both physical and digital risks. Tristan is also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University teaching about intelligence analysis He also conducts classes on critical thinking for close protection practitioners. He's the editor-in-chief of the International Protective Security Board's Close Protection and Security Journal and the founder of the wildly popular Geopolitics and GIN newsletter. Dr. Tristan Wheat, welcome to OnTIC's Protective Intelligence
1: Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, of course, we've been talking about this for a while. I mean, trusting you and I have such a great background together. We've built organizations, multiple organizations. Uh, we've got a few things cooking that we're working on. But but mostly, I mean, most recently, we did we did an article that was in, uh, I think it was dark reading about, about red teaming.
1: Yep, absolutely. It was uh, focusing on how to do red teaming at scale and the different concepts of red teaming an organization can apply.
0: Well... Before we get down that, though, I mean, I'm very, you know, I know you very well, but like for the audience, like tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, what you're into and what 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 you do.
1: Absolutely. So I am a red team analyst currently uh, contracted to a tech company, and I have sort of one of the greatest jobs in security because the way I describe it is thinking thoughts. So I do everything from OSINT for operations for red teaming when we actually go and do the physical pen testing. To threat modeling, uh, war gaming, and alternative analysis, and then also like root cause analysis of vulnerabilities that we find. And so, the vast majority of my job is just thinking thoughts, as I like to say. Well, I, I mean,
0: those aren't jobs that you open up your your uh, your app and say, "Hey, find me a job that's thinking about thinking." I mean, how did you wander in, and how did you how did you find yourself there, and maybe a little bit also like what what are the origins to
1: Dr. Wheat coming into that. Absolutely. So I'll usually describe myself as a displaced academic. So I finished my PhD and realized I hated academia on multiple levels. So I had to find something else to do with my life. Um, And that's serendipitously how I fell into corporate security. And then uh, that's where Chuck and I met. um, And as he said, we built uh, some Intel teams together but then my sister who does anti-money laundering knew of a team who needed a as, red team as one analyst. sister does yeah yeah no she's <laughs> our whole family is basically in the security stuff and um she's basically like i think you would fit in really well with this team and so i was like okay fine so i sent uh, her my resume to send to them and it was sort of like a an immediate match made in heaven because i hadn't done red teaming before wasn't really aware of it um until i got this job and then i realized the entire way i approach the world is attuned um, to how red teamers think so critical thinking being fundamental to this the ability to check assumptions the ability to be objective and separate the person from the analysis the willingness to question dominant ideas so everything that made me a really bad academic actually made me a really good red teamer (laughs)
0: Well, and, you know, we had Brian McDermott on, uh, on the podcast, I don't know, a few months back, and he talked about red teaming from his perspective and what he does. And what you do is, is slightly different. So, you know, for the audience, can you kind of frame what Brian's red teaming is and, and then maybe how
1: you fit into that overall formula? Absolutely. Um, so Brian McDermott is a fantastic red teamer. I highly recommend everyone looking him up. What he focuses on is structured analytic techniques to support decision-makers. Primarily, um, that's his role as a red teamer, and he's very, very good at it. Our red team does does that a very little bit. We use structured analytic techniques mostly to question um, predominant analysis, This is called alternative analysis, or we use it to think through threat modeling. Um, and so we do something we call poison circles where we basically just come up with ways to attack people, (laughs) which sounds a little dark, but is very, very useful because then we have to think through the threat actors and what's their motivation. And if they're motivated by this, what kind of TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures do they use? Um, How would they behave in a violent situation? How would they behave if they're trying to steal intellectual property? And so we use a lot of the similar techniques, but ours is focused on physical pen testing and alternative analysis, um, while Brian's focuses on decision support and helping people make the best decisions.
0: How much method acting? I'm just thinking about it. It's like I get to think like the bad guy. And of course, in the the article that we posted in Dark Reading, you know, I talked about some training I had gone into, but I you know, where you assume the role of the bad guy, soup to nuts every day, new name, new uniform. Here you go. I mean, how much method acting goes into you sitting at a computer, possibly with a skull with a candle on it, you know, thinking
1: <laughs> gloomy thoughts about how to, how to penetrate or, or target somebody. Uh, so it's so much fun because I sometimes get to write like manifestos. Um, for our operations. And so we really do take on that sort of method acting mentality so that we can really emulate the threat actors. Um, The $2 word I like to use for this in conversations is verisimilitude. We really aim for realistic scenarios. Um, That's what verisimilitude means. And so I will write out uh, like a, a, a key part of like my, job is doing the research in how, say, a left-wing terrorist would behave differently than a right-wing terrorist. Because most people, when they look at terrorism, they say terrorism is terrorism. But that's not really true. Islamists, right-wing, left-wing environmentalists, they actually all have very different targeting patterns, um, methods, TTPs that they utilize, how much violence they're actually willing to do. So there are some terrorists who who have very limited violence, um, as opposed to some who want to kill as many people as possible. Some are sabotage terrorists, et cetera. Well,
0: it's interesting because it, I th- I think about this, in you know, you and I have done some great things where I, I, I'm i just recalling the time that we took the, we took the China five-year plan and then we retroactively looked at it and then took the next one and then made some predictions or forecasting, uh, sorry, Ross, about what we might see for for the company we work for and for other organizations to look at, I mean, this really it, i mean it's a yeah there's a method to it there there's a bit of creativity and i do want to come back and ask you about what's called thick int but a lot of this revolves around critical thinking yes
1: absolutely you have to be an excellent critical thinker to do red teaming well and so there's a lot of tools. So this is what we call the structured analytic techniques, which are tools to force you to do critical thinking, but your good red teamers, um, do critical thinking much more naturally, um, second nature because they've done a ton of training because they've done a ton of practice. They can apply these critical thinking concepts to whenever we're engaging a new target or doing alternative analysis. And so this involves everything from breaking down assumptions. So this is always where you start of, of what assumptions are you imposing on the argument or that the person making the argument is making. Um, and then you have to work through framework. And so this relates to understanding people's belief systems and ideologies. And then that's one form of of. Framework and analysis, but then you also have to understand like biases and heuristics, so the mental shortcuts that people take, and then how they come to their conclusions. And you have to go through all of the entire process to break down an argument to understand it, either for alternative analysis for decision support, or if you're trying to take on the perspective of a threat actor. So, how do you do that
0: if you're uh, you're working on a an objective and you want to understand like what is the potential uh, threat actors? Um, um, activity or actions in this. I mean, how do you sit down with your yellow legal pad or, or whatever in whatever dark gloomy place you have, or, (laughs) you know, with your cup of coffee or something, how do you start this process? This, you know, where does critical thinking start? Walk me through your protocol, I guess.
1: Absolutely. Um, so the way I start say with like a threat actor is you go to what they actually say about themselves. Um, Because too often in in analysis, we don't really believe what people tell us, even though they're telling us the truth. Um, And so I think a prime example is Osama bin Laden. People tried to impose ideas on Islamist terrorists, particularly Al-Qaeda. But bin Laden really did tell us in the 90s exactly why he was going to attack us. Uh, And so people like gloss over those those fatwas from 96 and 98 and all the public statements he made. So like that's an excellent place to start if you're doing like threat actor research. But if you're starting with an argument, you have to really begin with deconstruction. So what are the relevant variables as part of the analysis? Um, Where are they getting their information um what is the implication of what they're saying and so you have to deconstruct each of the different parts so that you can break down the argument to its smallest pieces because sometimes um more often than we like when you remove one of those those corrupted pieces either a variable or a heuristic or or a bias the entire argument collapses and so this is why deconstruction is really important to, to understand. So to start with, uh, cause Chuck was making fun of me a little bit. I always have my yellow legal pad that I use to, to write out all of my notes. And, um, and that's how I start this process is I don't start like typing up anything as I have my pad and I'm just writing out on paper. Um, Osama bin Laden is this person, this is what he thinks. This is the things he's doing. Here's the history. Um, and you go through it to create that clearer picture.
0: Now hold that thought just for a second. During this process, do we take logical? Let's call them water breaks, but really they're bias breaks. Like, how often do you stop and say, "Is this, is this a, is this my bias? Is this my subconscious, unconscious bias, or is is this a a true fact?" I mean, I think what you said about Bin Laden is correct, and we could probably name a bunch of things. Whether it's a business uh, activity, whether it's a terrorist activity perhaps uh, active threats, active shooters, where people have said exactly what they're going to do, but for whatever reason, the veil of emotional hubris, bias, whatever, prevents us from seeing what's in front of us. That seems like a Sherlock Holmes
1: thing to me. Definitely. So we're going to come back to Sherlock Holmes in a second because I think Sherlock Holmes epitomizes critical thinking and probabilistic thinking better than any, anyone else Agree. Could learn from. Um, And so you have to do the constant bias checks. Now, here's the thing about red teaming. Uh, Red teams need to be a team. You can't red team by yourself. Uh, Very rarely could you actually red team by yourself for exactly the reason you're talking about. You need to regularly do bias checks. But as we like to say in, in the business, you can't check your own homework. Right. And so this is why a red team, people who act like within your team who are willing to be like, "No, you're completely wrong. Here's why, and you hone the argument better.
0: What's well, interesting, I mean, we even talked about it in the article,
1: like you have to test your assumptions
0: as you go along the way, and a team has to do that because of inherent biases, emotions, hubris, like I said earlier, but you have to be willing to accept the feedback that what I'm doing may or what what I'm maybe guiding towards may be incorrect. You know, my assumption, my statement may be incorrect. I might have to, to veer off.
1: And that's why you need uh, people to come in. It's why diversity of thought is so important for a red team. You need people who actually see the world differently than you do, rather than all of us coming from the military or all of us coming from academia, um, breaking up groupthink is one of the most important parts of red teaming. And then to go to the bias and uh, heuristics you were talking about, people think of bias overwhelmingly in terms of politics or religion, but that's not really the bias that uh, a red teamer should care about because that's a paradigm. That's a framework by which people perceive information. And it's far easier to articulate and view those assumptions than, uh, for example, the availability bias. Where you're only going to look for things that uh, that you easily remember or that have recently been in the news. That's a very different bias and much a harder one to move beyond. I'll give it, I'll give an example. I was doing an alternative analysis um, for a report that was submitted, and in the location, the analyst group had said there is not, there is unlikely to be a terrorist attack in this location, and terrorism was one of my areas of specialty. So I was like, mm, my sort of you know, bell in the back of my head went off, that that doesn't seem right. So I went back and I wrote out every single terrorist attack that had occurred in the last 15 years. And based on that data, I sent this back to them and I was like, you are fundamentally wrong. Uh, This is is not right, you need to correct this. Um, And they refused to correct it. But there was a terrorist attack uh, three weeks later
0: We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment, but first I wanted to tell you a little bit about ontics Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of safety, security, and protection, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the OnTIC Center for Protective Intelligence. The center is a trusted resource for those in security, safety, and protection communities. We share strategies and best practices, insights on current and historical trends, and lessons learned through dialogue, discourse and alternative analysis from some of the industry's top practitioners to find blogs podcasts webinars white papers and more check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center that's ontic.co slash center Uh, that's one of those where you're like, I, I hate it when I'm right. Uh, unfortunately, but yes. I mean, that's, I, I think we get clouded in our own judgments. And I actually think that's a blind spot in many organizations because a, they, they can't, maybe they, they don't know how to sell the value of all, let's just say alternative intelligence analysis, which is part of the red team process. They don't know how to sell that because, you know, why do I want to pay somebody to tell me that maybe what I'm thinking is incorrect? Uh, whereas opposed to, I think if you're a good organ, you know, on an organization, again, we, we could be talking about a business function. We could be talking about MA, We could be talking about terrorists, we, terrorism. We could be talking about, you know, an event, multiple things to say, look, I just need someone to give me an alternative thought on this. Because at the end of the day, we want to enable business decision makers with options or courses of
1: action that have some facts around them so they can make a decision. Which is the entire point of, of Intel analysis and red teaming is to help our business leaders, in particular, because we do this for the private sector, to make mm-hmm. better decisions so that their business thrives. Um, and I want to go back for a second to, to Sherlock Holmes, because I think he's intimately I was just related going to
0: ask you about. That. Oh,
1: <laughs> I think he's intimately related to what you're talking about. So Sherlock Holmes uses what's called abductive reasoning which is different from inductive or deductive, primarily in in two ways. One, it's not trying to explain everything. And two, it's entirely probabilistic reasoning. And Sherlock Holmes does this best, uh, whenever he's coming to these conclusions, there's a great scene in the first episode of the BBC version that exemplifies this well, where he's in the car with John and he's explaining his thought process on how he knew all of the stuff about John Watson, that he, you know, had fought in a war, that he was a medical doctor, that he had been injured, that he had a, a, sci- a therapist, um, et cetera. And he's going through the process and it was all a couple clues, a few data points, as we would say, pieces of intelligence that he then pulled together and probabilistically which meant it was more likely than not for this to be true and went with it. And I also love that scene because he got one thing wrong. Um, and so probability doesn't you know, always get you right, but he got the, everything but one thing right uh, because of the probabilistic analysis, um, which is really, really important and then another really important thing from Holmes for this as well is Holmes' argument throughout the books, um a study in in Scarlet uh, the novel does it best, where he talks about the difference between seeing and observing. and so his criticism of john watson and and other people in the world is that they go throughout the world and they just look at things without taking in the information and so his his challenge to John, is like, how many steps did you just walk up? And and John doesn't know. And he says, you've walked the, up those steps a hundred times. How have you never counted them before? And so this is the difference between seeing and observing that goes to the basis of, of objective analysis that's needed for probabilistic analysis.
0: Well, he says, I think it's in the Boscombe Valley uh, mystery. He says, you know, quote, there's nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact. And actually that, that was in my office uh, I don't know if you ever saw it where where we used to work uh together, just because I always thought to also to check my own bias about those things, like what am I missing that's right in front of me because I won't let myself see it
1: no and and throughout the stories, this is the the great part of what he does and why he's so um useful for intel analysts especially, but, but generally for security people to, to look at, is if we take on that exact same mindset, and there are other parts um, that you can actually emulate Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Chuck knows this book, it's a great book called The Mastermind um, by Karakova. Highly a recommend really great it. Book. Absolutely. Um, where studying that method of engaging information and and to go back to red teaming, this is where critical thinking and red teaming go together, is you have to be a specific kind of contrarian to do this well. So people confuse being a contrarian with questioning literally everything at all times. That's not a very mm-hmm. useful approach to the world or a useful approach to analysis. You need specific things to question, uh, like assumptions, um, validity of information, where did this come from? But ascribing, say, negative motivations to people making an argument actually goes against good analysis or good critical thinking. You need to question where appropriate, um, which sounds weird, but you need to be a contrarian on uh, the different parts of the argument without questioning things just to question them.
0: I think you're—so— I think you're absolutely right on that. I think at some point somebody coined the phrase, and I don't know who it is, so you know uh you can reach out to me at at antic if if you want, but like the idea of like you're constructively disruptive mm-hmm. now that's half a step away from disruptive, and I think sometimes people miss that. They're like, "Oh, somebody told me that once, so I'll question everything because that's the right thing, which in fact, you must question the right things perhaps questioning everything is really just disruptive and not in a constructive way.
1: No, that's, that's absolutely it. Because if you're having to go through uh, the, the thought process of literally everything you do at all times, that is the peak of inefficiency and not, not helpful to, to anyone. And so I, I talk about this when I talk about critical thinking, where I've talked about heuristics, which are those mental shortcuts. Not all heuristics are bad. In fact, sometimes heuristics can be really, really good. For example, you don't have to think through the whole process of getting into your car and driving home every time you do it. You are right. so used to it. It's the, where the aphorism, you know, riding a bicycle comes. It's like you, when you have those shortcuts, those are actually very useful. And when you're doing inte- like intelligence analysis, there are certain mental shortcuts, say, about geopolitics that you can take. Uh, for example, states are going to maximize their security and power. You can just take that as, as an assumption without having to question it every single time whenever you're doing geopolitical analysis. That can just be a legitimate assumption of yours. Right.
0: Uh, question uh, b- before we get too far along. I mean, how do, you know, people are listening right now they're like, this is fascinating. I need to use this more in my organization. I'm a leader. I'm a team leader, um, you know, or I'm a- an analyst. Where do I start?
1: How, if I'm not an intelligence analyst or I'm not a red team professional, how should I start? So I think there are two key ways for people to start who don't do analysis regularly. For an analyst, I would say something a little bit different. But if you're not used to doing this, number one, start applying it to your own life. That's the Mm -hmm. easiest way to start checking assumptions and the way you make decisions. And so anytime you make a a decision, not, you know, I'm going to go get something to eat, but make a real decision, um, walk through your process, the entire process. And I recommend writing it down because I just think it's always helpful. But go through, what is my assumption in this decision? Why did I perceive what this person said or the information I took in that way? How how am I coming to the conclusion that I'm going to do this? And so looking through your personal life um, and your personal decisions is an excellent, easy way to start because you can just do that mentally um, as, as you're doing things. And then number two, I believe in, in the use of fiction um, and reading novels and watching movies and then analyzing them because it gives you an entire plot uh, wrapped up where you can actually go through and say, okay, this character believed this because of their background. When this event happened, they decided to respond in this way. This was the outcome. And you have the complete story all in front of you for you to be able to walk through the entirety of the decision-making and understand how process, how ideology, how beliefs, how money, um, how any number of variables impacted decision-making and outcome and so it's a very very useful technique uh to to read novels and watch movies and then analyze them you don't just passively consume them you have to think through after well the dod
0: and and government agencies many use this concept of of thick and if you will to look at possible scenarios in more of a fictional kind of way to a make it easier for the end user to consume this this high concept of potential scenarios you know threat scenarios but also it is creative thinking in terms of, you know, how do we analyze the pattern? What can we learn? How do we, how do we think about these things more holistically? I know you're a big fan of, of that.
1: Yes, I am. So for those who don't know, Ficant is fictional intelligence, and it's the use of a fictional story to tell a complicated idea in order to explore the different avenues that a scenario could take. And you use this to work through mentally the processes of if China does this, what will happen? And so you can write a fictional story through the, you know, the perspective of a soldier or a general. Um, and I use this when I do threat modeling. I always like to include uh, short stories at the end of the threat model um, for the different parts that I do because it gives the reader... And the consumer of the information, a narrative by which to understand the concepts I'm going through. Now, two examples.
0: Yep. two examples just for people to think of. One, if you're old school, um, was it uh, Red Storm Rising by Tom Clancy, which was basically a DoD, uh, a big DoD ficant model that he turned into a book. And then more recently, uh, I think you and I were just talking about this on the phone the other day, Ghost Fleet which did the same thing and and took larger concepts and said, okay, let's break these down into a fictional way that are consumable, uh, more importantly, because we want the ideas to get, to get out there. So leaders, especially DOD, military leaders, government types can think about them.
1: Yes. And, and I love like the novel uh, use of this. And by that, I mean the use of novels, not novel as a new, um, Because again, this is why I think reading novels is so useful is it gives you that whole story to go through. Short stories are very, are very important and applicable. And that's primarily what I use. I've never written a novel for this, but I love say like PW Singer does this. Um, and he's very, very good at it where he has like footnotes, um, for the various things in, in the novel. So he's like, this isn't just futuristic. Like we are going through this concept of how it can apply. And I think this is very, uh, a useful tool for analysts and then security professionals writ large to be able to explain ideas and concepts because not everyone let's, let's just be entirely honest. Most Intel reports are not super exciting to read. Um, as much as we try and we try to be good writers and good researchers, 90% not... of our audience was just offended, but that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the truth, though. Um, there's a reason like so much of what we have to do is epitomization and brevity because right. nobody's going to sit around and read the actual 50 pages that would give you the complete picture. And so this is why it's another useful thing because humans think in stories. They think in narratives. Going back to Homer... Or, or um, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, like the literature has been part of our our communication style for thousands of years, and we can't forget it because it's really, really useful, um, critical thinking way to to convey information.
0: Um, I, I'm, I'm cognizant of time, and I, I do. I got a couple more things I want to ask you, uh, Doctor Lee. One is you're probably one of the most voracious readers I know, and lately you've been posting, I don't know, at least three books a week that you're reading. I mean, why the sudden surge and, and, and what are you, what are you finding in in all your reading? That's interesting.
1: So, uh, yeah, I've been doing a ton of reading this year because I'm really trying to meditate on some specific security concepts. Uh, so like just the last two weeks I've read six books on China. Um, I'm reading a ton on Intel, doing Wargaming Next. And it's because I'm really trying to spend this year working through as much of the literature as possible for our industry, because I have several things I'm trying to work on about the professionalization of in corporate security intelligence in particular. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited for that. And what I've learned, because I've, I've reached um, 60 books this week uh, for the year, And what I love reading that many books in succession is I get to compare and contrast ideas much easier than if I'd be like, oh, I read this book, you know, last year and comparing it to now. When you're reading them so quickly, you see ideas float up um, and, and you are able to dismiss them or accept them like much more quickly. And so I just really have appreciated that. So like the books I've been reading on China, you know, I've been comparing like Kissinger's um, book to Pillsbury to um, Shudo, uh, Doshi. And they just have, they each hit at the same topics, but from slightly different perspectives. And I've just really enjoyed that. And I can't encourage security professionals enough to to go out and read and consume information and to be lifelong learners.
0: General Mattis once said, hey, look, war... There's much written about wars, so if you're not reading about them, that you know you're missing out. I mean, he said it in a much more eloquent way, but the same thing here. I mean, there's so many things out there on the subjects. If you look at a company's 10K, I mean, there's so many things out there on the things that are affecting the risks that affect our organizations. You should behoove yourself to write a list of what those topics are and try to hit them at least once a week. Um, Tristan, you're also you've recently started something. Two of my favorite things. Geopolitics and Gin, what is this?
1: So I've started a newsletter titled Geopolitics and Gin. And so this is a newsletter on my LinkedIn page if anyone is interested. Um, But gin, the gin and tonic was a really important part of the British empire because it helped them fight malaria. And so because of the gin and tonic, which was invented by sailors in India, they were able to to occupy um, the subcontinent far more easily, which had a great impact on uh, the 19th century and 20th century in terms of of geopolitics. And so the idea behind my newsletter is to look at smaller variables um, in order to understand the larger picture and that analysts often miss those smaller concepts or ideas or issues that will actually have a much larger impact, the genotonic being representative of those smaller variables. So if anyone's interested, it's on my LinkedIn. I love it. Uh, One last question. Epicurean or Stoic? Oh, I can't choose between the two because I believe in both. (laughs) I know... I know I'm waiting to spring that on you for the last thirty minutes. <laughs> metaphysically, I know that that they are uh, diametrically opposed. But each of their central concepts, um, I think, matter because they both sort of accept the idea of of life as suffering and the oscillations. And then they offer two what I think are compatible theses. Stoics being you regulate your emotions in order to handle the vicissitudes of fate. And Epicureans are you go have a nice bottle of wine. And so I'm going to partake in both. My friend,
0: that sums you up in like
1: one sentence. And and that's why I love it.
0: Um, how do people find you? How do they follow you? How do they go get some uh, geopolitics with their gin and and continue to track your your adventures? Other than looking for some articles and in, in things?
1: Absolutely. Uh, so LinkedIn is honestly the best way to follow me. I do most of my postings and professional stuff uh, through them. Um, but uh, I'm working on building a website, so hopefully that will come out soon on Geopolitics and gin. But I don't know if that'll be out by the time this does. Awesome.
0: Well, my friend, as uh, Sherlock Holmes said, the game is afoot. With terms of, in terms of geopolitics and gin. Uh, I really appreciate you taking time to come on the podcast and talk to us about all this.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it. This episode
0: was brought to you by the ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's co slash center. It was produced by A.J. McKeon. Our music is a track called Monteverde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smoke and Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcasts on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. Thanks for listening.